Warning, the Federal Communications Commission requires that we inform you that this episode of the Derek Duvall Show may contain content inappropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. The FCC also requires us to inform you that this episode may contain the words f***, s***, asshole, mother boy, dumpster, galloping quit, but in like a British way, and also, strangely, cul-de-sac. Once again, this show may contain content not suitable for anyone but the coolest children. Listener discretion is advised. Powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello! Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please, everyone, sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, Deborah Kagan. Her episode was a huge hit. And if you have not heard our very in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 204, and we have an absolutely fantastic episode lined up for you today. We have on the show Eduardo Sanchez. Eduardo is a very talented and successful filmmaker, best known for co-directing the blockbuster horror film The Blair Witch Project with Daniel Myrick. Eduardo will be discussing his Cuban heritage, his early years in film school, the struggles of getting The Blair Witch Project off the ground, plus its production, and the incredibly clever marketing that led to one of the most successful independent films in the history of cinema. Eduardo also has had a successful career directing television shows, and we'll be discussing various shows he has worked on, including Star Trek Strange New Worlds. This is an incredibly in-depth interview, and no stone is left unturned, so sit back and enjoy. So, Duval Nation, please welcome the show calling in today from Frederick, Maryland, the co-director of The Blair Witch Project, Eduardo Sanchez. Good morning. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How is the weather out by you today? It's uh, nice. It's warm. And uh, I mean, it's cold, it's cold, but sunny. So it's nice. So with the pandemic now winding down, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? I mean, I was pretty lucky because my partner and I had some writing work that we had just engaged in right before the it closed down. So I'm, I'm mostly a director. Um, a TV director. So I, uh, so basically all that shut down, but luckily we were developing a script for Apple. So it, it brought in a little bit of money during the, you know, eight or 10 months that, that we didn't work. 
um, or I didn't work. But otherwise, you know, it was kind of, I mean, you know, again, it was like definitely scary. And, um, you know, I remember wiping, you know, wiping down the groceries and that kind of stuff. But also it was a time like all, you know, my, the whole family was here uh, at home. I have three kids and um, and it was nice. It was kind of, you know, getting back to the basics of, uh, you know, just hanging out. And, and we spent a lot of, you know, family time together watching movies and just kind of playing games and stuff. So you know, it was, it was actually kind of a, a, you know, mixed blessing. So, so I was, uh, you know, I was pretty happy about that. Fair enough. So every journey has a beginning. You were born in Cuba, but moved, right. to, moved to Spain when you were two and then relocated to the United States in 72. Do you ever try to get back to Cuba to explore your Cuban heritage? Yes. I, I've, uh, you know, I'm, you know, obviously super interested in Cuba and uh, my parents, uh, you know, uh, still don't speak any English. So they're very, you know, I was very much, I came here when I was like four or five. So I was very much, you know, I had Cuba at home and then, you know, the United States, America at school and out in the playground. So I, um, you know, I'm always been, I was been fascinated by Cuba and also kind of, you know, you know, uh, a little bit intimidated by it because, you know, I'm not, I don't remember any of it. And, um, I, you know, I'm definitely Cuban and I'm proud to be Cuban, but I feel like I have so much to learn, you know, and uh, to catch up on. But um, no, I've, I haven't gone back. My father has gone back a bunch of times. And um, actually a few years ago, well, now almost probably seven years ago now, in uh, 2016, we sold a show, a TV show called uh, Camino to Stars. And this is during, you know, um, you know, the the end of Obama. So, you know, the 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 relationship between Cuba and the United States had thawed a little bit, and uh, Stars was going to make was going to do three TV shows in in Cuba. Ours was the second one, and we were literally like, I was getting my Cuban passport because I have to, you know, have dual citizenship. I was getting it renewed, and we were we wrote the script. We had a Bible. We wrote, you know, we outlined ten episodes. And then, you know, about to go to Cuba and start scouting locations. And then uh, Castro died and then Trump got elected. And that was the end of that. And that was really disappointing because it was kind of, I mean, as you can imagine, it was like kind of a dream come true for me to like actually go to Cuba and, you know, and do a TV show. And I was, you know, my partners, Greg Hale, who was the producer of Blair Witch and Alejandro Bruges, who's a Cuban filmmaker. We had a good team and, uh, you know, and this, yeah, and we still love the, the story. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's really cool. It's a horror movie, basically a horror TV show in Cuba. So it would have, you know, I thought, I think it would have been really cool, but unfortunately it didn't work out. And then from then on, you know, um, we saw another show to Apple, the one I was talking to you about previously. And that was about a Cuban immigrant, but it wasn't in Cuba. It was took took place in Miami. So I'm always trying to touch base with kind of my, you know, the Cuban heritage and, and again, trying to keep up and, and, and also just kind of trying to learn from my parents. My parents are older now. And, you know, um, you know, I talk to them about, you know, life in Cuba. And so, you know, it's always something that's fascinated me, but um, unfortunately I haven't been able to go back. Fair enough. At what age did you stop growing to the height of six foot seven? <laughs> You know, I was when I was in high school. I was like really worried that I wasn't going to stop growing. I remember t telling the doctor, "Wait, man, when am I going to stop growing?" <laughs> I think I stopped growing around like 19, 18 or nineteen, uh, like right after high school. I think I stopped growing, and you know, it's like something that 
you know, sets me apart from everybody. And I think, and it's kind of been a blessing and a curse. Like, you know, it's a curse because, uh, you know, it's, as, especially as a kid, you know, you try to figure out, you know, you try to fit in and you can't really fit in when you're six foot five, six foot six in high school. And, you know, in, in elementary school, like basically standing in the back with the teachers <laughs> while all your, you know, schoolmates are sitting. So, you know, it, it's like, you know, it, so it definitely took me a lot, a long time. And I still kind of deal, you know, have to deal with, it. I'm always very awkward in public and large, you know, uh, with a lot of people. Um, but also I, I feel that like, I wouldn't have gotten to the place that I am. Like, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. I think if it wasn't for my height, because it, um, I'm kind of a, you know, kind of a low key guy. Like I definitely like, you know, get along with everybody and I'm not, you know, I, I avoid drama. So I'm not very forceful. And I think my height kind of gives me this authority that, you know, kind of natural authority that I wouldn't have had if I was, you know, five, five or whatever. And I think that's part of like how I've been able to like, you know, early on when I was in film school and even before film school, like I was able, I was kind of a leader, like, and I was able to like get people to work on my projects and, I always had this ability to like kind of in um you know uh you know make make people enthusiastic about working for my projects for the most part you know um one of my teachers told me that it's like you know your greatest talent is like you're able to you know your ability to um you know to lead to lead people so you know it's like again it's a blessing and a curse and uh, it's always a curse you know when I'm flying coach or trying to find clothes that fit me. Um, but again, you know, it definitely sets me apart and I feel like I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my height. Is it one of those things like I wear a size 14 and a half shoe. So is, is it one of those things as well? Like you, you wear, you have like giant feet like me? No, you know, actually it's weird. Cause I don't have giant feet. I, I my feet are like 12 and a half. Oh, wow. Okay. So I have like pretty small feet for my height. And I, I, I remember a guy in, um, in high school, who had like already had like 16 uh size feet and he was shorter than me but he was this you know guy and a friend of mine and I, he would tell me about like oh my god I, and that's just before the internet you know what i mean like now you can actually order online and get right. your shoes like back then you, you know, i don't know how you i guess mail order but but no fortunately i you know my body is very long and weird but my feet are you know, pretty small for you know for, for my height for sure fair enough, fair enough. What are your earliest memories of wanting to get into, you know, the filmmaking industry? Um, you know, I, I was always fascinated by it. my dad, um, who is, you know, my dad is like, a, you know, he's a he was a contractor, very simple guy, like didn't I don't even think he he probably went to like the fourth or fifth grade. And then he started working in Cuba with for his and his brothers. Um, they had like a contracting company. So he kind of grew up, he was the youngest of like 10 kids. So he was kind of born wild and didn't really pay attention to education, but he loved movies. And when I was a kid, he would always not really talk to me about movies, but he was always watching movies. Like I would come in and he'd be watching, he would, and he didn't speak English. So he would love, he loved like James Bond and anything with action and any kind of slapstick comedy. Like he loved like the Benny Hill show. So he, and he like, I don't know, he was just fascinated with it. He would take me to movies. Um, there's this place uh, called the Ontario in, in, in Tacoma Park where I grew up. And it was the only place that had like subtitled or sometimes Spanish dubbed movies. And he would take me to whatever was playing there. And I, I watched some movies that I should not have watched as a, <laughs> you know, seven or eight year old kid, but he would take me just to, you know, get me out of the house. Um, but he really loved film, you know, he really loved the, you know, watching movies. So I kind of got, you know, into it. And then Star Wars, you know, in 77, I was about, I was nine years old. 
or eight years old when it came out and it was just kind of mind blowing. And I, I didn't even see the movie. It was just like the, you know, I, I took, you know, back then you had to kind of wait in line. I mean, it was, you know, back, it, you know, us, you know, people who lived through it, it was like a freaking, you know, it was, nobody had ever seen anything like that. You know, like people, it was, you had to like make plans to go see star Wars. And um, so it took me a couple of months to actually go see it, but just the hype of it and the commercials and all the magazines and all the, um, you know, all the merchandising and stuff that had come out was just so incredible. Like the trailer just, you know, every time there was a TV, you know, a, a commercial on the, on the, on the TV, I was just fascinated by it. So that really got me into the idea of like, how do you make, how do they make these movies? How do they make, how does it make Star Wars? How do they make it? And um, so I, you know, bought a few books that I could afford on the movies, the history of the movies and filmmaking and special effects. And this was, you know, late seventies. So you know, that way before, you know, computer, um, you know, generated imagery. And I just really loved it. I just, you know, but I never thought of it as a career because, you know, I grew up in Maryland, you know, a suburb of DC, you know, there was no filmmaking. I mean, John Waters, I think was around already, but I was too young for John Waters. And I probably, you know, luckily I didn't really run into any of his films, but, you know, you know, his films are definitely not for kids, but, you know, it was kind of like, so there wasn't, wasn't anybody really, there was no film business in, in DC at the time. So I, I was just like, well, you know, there's no, how could I be a filmmaker? Like that's not realistic. So in, uh, and then in high school, I uh, took a, a television production class in 11th grade. And the, from the first day there, the teacher was like, you know, kind of like just talked logic and kind of, of the idea of like, look, you know, you don't have to be a director. You don't have to be, you know, Steven Spielberg. You, um, you know, there are so many jobs on television and film and radio. And like, you know, there's, you know, there, there's so many different kinds of things. And from that, I mean, I remember it was like a, a a switch was flipped in my head. Like I remember, you know, it was Mr. Barron, this kind of tall guy. And he was, I was like in the front, I was in the front of the class, which I never sat in the front of the class. And I remember that moment when he like opened my mind and I was just like, wow, this is what I'm going to do. So from then on, I was like, I was a filmmaker. Like all of a sudden I was a filmmaker and all of my insecurities about my height and, you know, my, the pimples on my face and not having girlfriends and, you know, just being awkward. They were, they were all kind of, um, you know, behind this fortress, this wall of like, I'm a filmmaker and I don't care what these people think. And when I'm, you know, famous and making millions of dollars, you know, they're going to come back and, you know, uh, you know, realize that I was special, you know, just the basic kind of high school, just kind of trying to get through high school, you know, it's tough. And, uh, and that, you know, and then I was just, you know, and, and that served me well. And it also kind of cursed me for a while, you know, until I made it as, you know, again, like most filmmakers, you know, it is kind of a disease like you, you, because it's the odds are so against you, but you can't think that way or else you, you know, you, th there's no hope, but, you know, so you kind of have to have this delusion of like, you know, that you can make it. And luckily for me, I had this delusion and I, got lucky and I hooked up with the right people and we came up with the right ideas. And, but, you know, so I, I, I did a feature in college. I did another feature in film school. And so I was just kind of in that, you know, in that zone, you know, just being a filmmaker and I'm still, you know, I still kind of hide behind that a little bit, you know, the, the whole idea of being, you know, a, a, you know, sort of a celebrity, you know, semi-celebrity and, um, you know, being a filmmaker like that still kind of, you know, 
gives me buoyancy and a lot of through a lot of turmoil in my life. Hmm. Talk about your time at Montgomery College. Montgomery College was, I mean, probably the most joyful time for me as a filmmaker. You know, I, I, I in high school, I took, you know, the television class in 11th grade. And then in 12th grade, I took an internship at the studio. And we were, and, and look, it, it, the, my whole life has been seriously blessed. Like we were the only, or we were like one of the only like two schools in Montgomery County, Maryland, to have editing equipment and like a real film studio, you know, like a real, not a film studio, but a TV studio. I mean, we had VHS cameras. It was, you know, kind of ridiculous, but we had VHS editors. And so I learned to edit in high school. I learned to shoot a little bit. I learned to light. I learned to started writing. I learned to edit, which was the big thing. Like I would edit all my, you know, films and all the videos and stuff. And so I, when I got to MC, I, I was not ready to like go to leave home. You know, I was very much like a, a mama's boy and, I was not ready to like even live in a dorm or anything. So I knew I wanted to stay home. So Montgomery College, my sister had gone, my older sister had gone to Montgomery College. And so I went and I took the television production class and, you know, I loved it and I thrived. You know, I was one of the better students. I, you know, I knew how to edit and I knew how to shoot. Again, like my height, like where I talked before, like really served me well. Um, I was, you know, kind of a natural leader and I was, people looked, you know, looked up to me, of course, but my, you know, I was, um, you know, singled out as one of the talented students. And it was, I met my, my wife, my future wife there, you know, which was my first like really serious relationship. I did, you know, and I I just had such a great time. It was like, you know, I, I was finally like doing something that I really loved. And I barely graduated high school, you know, because I was just like, I was just not interested in the anything but television. And I barely, you know, I, I barely got through English and I had like a math class that I had to take. And, uh, but at MC, you know, first of all, I was paying for it myself. So that, you know, that made a difference. Um, but I really, my grades went up and, you know, I was actually like, you know, kind of an A and B student, you know, finally. And, um, and I, I just grew a lot. I did a lot of things. People would have, you know, I, I wrote a lot of things for other students. They asked me to write things and I would, you know, all of my projects were kind of, you know, you know, like the teachers would always be like, oh, this is this is the example of what you guys should be trying to do and this and that. And it was, you know, it was really kind of, you know, again, my ego kind of exploded a little bit, but tried to keep it in control. Um, and uh, and then when I was there, um, a, a an older student, an older she was in her late 20s, you know, older for us. We, I was like 18, 19. She approached me. She was like, do you think we could do a feature film? And I'm like, you know, I don't know. You know, that's and this is, you know, this is like, I think probably pre El Mariachi. You know, this was like, you know, early 90s or late 80s. So it was even before probably Spike Lee. So there wasn't like much of a blueprint for like indie film, you know, but we were just like, yeah, let's just do it. So we ended up, you know, just grabbing a, VH, a couple of VHS cameras. I had a VHS camera and a camcorder and, um, we shot this movie that I wrote and it was a very silly movie and it was, you know, had, you know, it was kind of like a thriller and with comedy and it was, you know, it had some good moments, but it was, you know, definitely a 19 year old movie, you know, making a movie. And, uh, but that, you know, it taught me a lot. Um, so then when I went, when I got accepted into film school at the university of central Florida, I had this really kind of advantage over again, over a lot of the students, because I knew a lot of stuff. I had already done a feature, um, even though it wasn't successful and we, we didn't even try to sell it. I mean, you couldn't sell a VHS movie. Um, 
uh, and, and you know, we had no idea what the, you know, how to, how to sell a movie, you know, it was just not, you know, in the cards. Um, so, but when I went to film school, I went with a plan to like write a movie, write a feature, you know, my first year and then, you know, shoot it over the summer of, you know, going to my second year and then editing my second, you know, year and until I, you know, when I graduated and, um, and I was able to do that. So MC really, you know, kind of taught me to like, um, you know, prioritize, prioritize things and really gave me a plan. And also I, you know, it was like, I met in each of my, you know, each of my study, each of my schools in high school, there was a guy, a professor named Gary Dore who really supported me. There was a guy in MC named Don Smith who like really kind of, you know, realized that, you know, I was, I had kind of a vision and he really, you know, nurtured me and like, so, you know, supported me and, you know, gave us, gave me all the tools that I needed. And, and then, in, you know, in, in film school, there was a teacher named Mary Johnson, who was a script writing teacher who really, um, you know, kind of taught me a lot of stuff and believed in me. You know, that was, that's, that's really important when you're, when you're young and you're trying to get through things, you know, but MC just kind of definitely like gave me direction and, um, and gave me, you know, pushed me down this trajectory that ended up eventually uh, with Blair Witch. Hmm. Favorite memories from the University of Central Florida? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, again, I went into UCF, you know, just as a cocky guy, like, you know, I had done a feature and I'm, you know, whatever. And, you know, a lot of this, there was a lot of talent there, you know, there's a, and I, I remember noticing Dan Myrick, who I ended up doing you know, Blair Witch with, I noticed him immediately like, man, this guy knows how to shoot. And, and he was a little older than me and he'd already had, he kind of had gone to community college just like I did. So he knew how to edit. And, you know, he, you could tell he was, you know, a filmmaker, but it was this, you know, there was this competitive nature to, to, you know, just to film school in general, because first of all, it was, we went, I went to out of state. I was going to live by myself for the first time in Orlando. And, um, you know, I had been chosen. There was only 30 students that had been accepted to this program. And I was one of them. And it was, you know, I was really proud. And so I ended up going to UCF, you know, and I tell people this, like I tell students this all the time. It's like, you know, you got to be competitive and, you know, the, the business is competitive, but also like, especially in film school, like look, look around you and see the other people, the, the other talent and like try to learn from these people because, you're not always going to be the best. So you have to like learn. And I think that took me a while to kind of figure that out. So Dan and I ended up collaborating on a short film and then that led to, you know, just friendship. And then that led to basically coming up with the idea for Blair Witch. And then years later, you know, shooting it, you know, co-directing it with him. But, you know, UCF was, it was like, we, you know, it was the first year of the first official year of the film program of like, a, uh, you know, like a BFA or yeah, in, in, uh, or BF, I think it's Bachelor of Fine Arts in, in film, you know, so we were 30 students and, and we, they, there was no classrooms. Like they literally put us in these portable classrooms, like next to the parking lot. So there was a lot of camaraderie among the, the 30 students. Like I remember they wouldn't let us edit, you know, outside of the official office hours, you know, so eight to five is the only time you could edit. And, you know, obviously going to film school, you're like, there's no way that we're going to, that 30 people are going to be able to finish their films with just eight to five, you know, access. So everybody would, you know, edit at night. So we started, we started sneaking in and basically hiding from the security guard to like, one of us would just hide and they would lock the door and then once the security guard left, they would open the door for the rest of us. And every time the security guard came around, we would just like quiet, quiet. you know, everybody <laughs> just be quiet and just sit there. So that, you know, and, and eventually they opened it up, you know, to, 
you know, they found out we were doing that and we were like, this is the only way we're going to be able to finish these, these programs, these, you know, these assignments is to give us access at night, you know? So it, you know, it's, but it definitely kind of built this camaraderie among us. And I still keep in touch with a lot of the people and uh, that I went to film school with. And, and also it, you know, solidified my, uh, my relationship with Dan and Mike Manella, who later became a producer on Blair Witch. So, you know, it just definitely kind of, you know, gave us, we, you know, we were fighting against the man and, you know, the man, you know, even though there was no man, but we were, we had this kind of battle, you know, kind of, we were like ready for battle. And even though we're just making these little dumb movies, but so, but it definitely taught me, you know, about collaborating and kind of just kind of teaming up and realizing that, you know, you can't make a movie by yourself. And so it was very, you know, it was really educational in that way. Hmm. Who are your, you know, your filmmaking influences? Who are your idols? I mean, of course, George Lucas, as you can see behind me. Right. Um, I have a crazy Star Wars collection and also Star Wars, you know, obviously, like I said, you know, was the, the first movie that really kind of jarred me, like say, like kind of brought me into like, oh, they how do they make these movies? It kind of got me interested. Um, and then Spielberg. I mean, you, you can't, you know, I'm in my 50s, so you know, grew up in the seventies and early eighties and, and eighties. So it's like, can't go anywhere without Spielberg. Like, you know, so those movies really kind of, um, you know, just, you know, just excited me, you know, and gave, and I realized like the power of cinema, you know, and then later on, you know, like, as I started getting into, you know, college, I, I saw do the right thing. And I loved, Spike Lee and I, you know, his books on, you know, on making She's Gotta Have It and School Days and Do the Right Thing, his journals. And I just devoured them. I love them. And and then later on in film school, I discovered Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola. And, you know, and, and not that I had not seen these movies, but there was a difference. You know, it's kind of like the, the ability to recognize that, like, oh, you know, Scorsese's done this movie and this movie and that movie. Oh, there's a, you know, there's a pattern there, you know. So, you know, it just kind of opened my eyes. But, you know, I, Brian De Palma and um, John Carpenter, you know, early on, you know, I, I, I Terry Gilliam, you know, Brazil is one of my favorites. So, you know, it was like those early, those, you know, late 70s, early 80s, you know, filmmakers that, you know, that where I was developing my interest in film and they were kind of, they happened to be the, you know, the biggest filmmakers of that era. And uh, so that's kind of, those were kind of my my influences for sure. We're about to talk about Blair Witch in a minute, but I will ask this question real fast is, you know, when Blair Witch was the success that it was, did any of these filmmakers reach out to you to congratulate you? Um, no, I mean, you know, it's, I, I don't live, I didn't, and I've never lived in LA. So I think that was, um, that was part of the issue, you know, the, the idea that like, cause in L, you know, I have friends who live in LA and they're always like meeting, seeing people. I'm like, Oh my God, he, he you know, saw this guy at the theater or whatever. Um, so, so for me, it was, it had to be something that somebody personally, you know, introduced me to them. Right. Um, I met, I actually met Terry Gilliam in, uh, when we were doing our, um, the press tour in, um, in London, in, in England, when I was, we were doing our press tour for Blair Witch and he re you know, he reached out to us and was like, yeah, you know, we want to have dinner with these guys. So we had dinner and it was, you know, it was amazing. I couldn't believe that, that we were sitting there with Terry Gilliam. And um, he actually told us, he's like, cause you know, he saw us, he's like, 
man, Hollywood's going to eat you guys up, you know? Um, and we were like, yeah, yeah, whatever. We've heard it. And then, you know, he was right. Um, you know, I, I don't, you know, I think he, um, you know, cause he had been to the grinder obviously. And then, you know, we met Spike Lee was at the premiere for Blair Witch. I mean, it was cool. He wasn't very friendly, but you know, he's just, uh, he's, he's kind of that kind of guy. I've never, I've never, uh, really talked to him very much. Um, but he was, you know, he was there and he congratulated us and later at Cannes, with Blair Witch later that year in 99, we were on a panel with, which was, you know, we, it was, it just blew our minds. We were on a panel, like an American filmmaker panel. And we were basically there with all the other filmmakers that were American. We were there with, it was Spike Lee, Ron Howard, John Sayles. And then, and Roger Ebert was like moderating it. So it was just like, Dan and I were like, what the hell are we doing up here? So <laughs> and I remember taking a group photo with them and, John Sayles pretty tall, not as tall as me, but he's pretty tall. And he taught me like, he's like, you got to do the, do the leg split where you, you know, you open your legs and, you know, to bring your height down a little bit. So he taught me that technique. Um, but um, the, the most, the friendliest guy was Ron Howard. He was, you know, he was, he actually came up to us and he was like, Oh my God, you know, guys, he really was like enthusiastic about our success and was really happy for us, you know? But um, but other than that, you know, I mean, we we definitely did the you know, we did like the studio rounds, which my agents called the victory lap. You know, when you have a hit film, you kind of go through all and meet everybody. Right. And we met, you know, some some high executives and some you know big people and this and that. But it was never nobody ever. I mean, and I don't know. Nobody ever really reached out to me other than like I remember Adam Rifkin called me like out of the blue on my cell phone. and was like, hey, congratulations. And, you know, this and. But no, I mean, not not really. I mean, it was kind of surprising. Nobody really kind of reached out. And, and, you know, and I think that, you know, probably part of the reason was that I, you know, I wasn't in L.A. And, yeah. you know, so I think that was probably part of it. But again, you know, whoever there was a lot of enthusiasm, there was, a, you know, people kind of, you know, they didn't know what to make of Blair Witch. Like back in those days, like it was, you know, it was still early and the movie had blown up, but people like were like, what the hell is this movie? You know, it has no script. And a lot of people doubt, like would asking us, like, have you ever, guys ever written a real script? And, but, but otherwise, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, um, the reaction to us was pretty good and everybody was pretty friendly and just kind of interested in what, you know, what the hell, how the hell we did it, you know? How was the 1999 masterpiece we do call the Blair Witch Project conceived? <laughs> Dan and I were uh, in film school, and this is like 1991 or so. And um, we went to see a movie called Freddy's Dead, which was like a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. And, you know, it was a fun movie. It was the one with um, Roseanne Barr and, and Tom Arnold were in it. But it wasn't exactly like scary. It was just, a you know, it was a kind of a, I, can't, I don't even remember much of it. But um, we came back from the theater and we were like, man, you know, like, it was a cool film, but like, it didn't really scare us. And we were like, when we, you know, what's the last time that we were scared? So we started thinking about the movies that we grew up with, like The Shining and Amityville Horror and Jaws and, you know, those kinds of films that like really kind of free and The Exorcist, of course, which really freaked us out. And, but then, you know, and and, uh, and and we also started talking about like these kind of pseudo documentaries, like there was a movie called, you know, um, Chariot of the Gods. And there was a movie called The Legend of Boggy Creek that was like semi-documentary and semi-reenactments and it was just creepy and then we we both dan and i both 
connected with the show In Search Of, which was an old show from the 70s and 80s with Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy, yeah. Yeah, and that move, that show still creeps me out. His voice and just the way that they laid the music in, and it was like this, basically like you know, for people that never said never seen it, it was basically like a little documentary, like you know, half an hour documentary on something, ghosts or you know, uh, psychics, UFOs, Bigfoot, um, Loch Ness monster, and that show like just fascinated us and also scared the crap out of us. So Dan and I went to the local video store and we, we found a bunch of VHSs of old, you know, um, we got Legend of Boggy Creek and we got a couple episodes of In Search Of and I think we got Chariot of the Gods and whatever was, you know, was was available in that kind of subgenre. And um, and we watched a lot of those movies and they still freaked us out, you know, like In Search Of still was like, oh my God, there's nothing like you know, being um, like like a movie being like like being presented as factual, you know, like a documentary to like really freak people out, at least for us. And that's where we were like, I wonder if you could do that now, you know, if you could do that, you know, this is early 90s. And so we came up with this idea of like this film crew that is doing is making some documentary kind of like in search of of something, you know, mysterious in the woods somewhere, somewhere isolated and they disappear and then many years later their film is found and and so that was the basic story that was the basic idea we came up with you know it, it, during you know that weekend in 91 or whatever and um and uh and i remember the first kind of visual we had was like somewhere where they were going to find a house and they were going to walk into this house so we already had this like really you know that the, the ending we had we already had kind of at least the, the the location for it, we already had it figured out, and um, and that's how it was born. And 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 we was you know we we definitely we kept developing it, but we def we you know I was working on another feature, um, uh, Dan was working on his own feature, and so we were just busy, and we just kind of put it aside for five years in 96 or so i was i was i had graduated college you know university and i had my second feature gabriel's dream which we actually shot on film and it was very much like um you know very much inspired by spike lee the movie hadn't sold and i was having you know just doubts as a filmmaker and i was working this dead-end job that i had before college and i was just stuck in in uh, traffic on the beltway of, of dc and, uh, you know, I had a flip phone and I called Dan up and I'm like, dude, we got to do this. It was called the woods movie. We got to do the woods movie, man. I'm like at the end of my rope here. Like if I don't do something, I'm going to freaking die. And, you know, and Dan was like, dude, I'm the same way. So 96, that call led to like, you know, um, Dan involving Greg Hale, who ended up being the, the producer and really like, um, motivating us and really providing a lot of momentum for for the show for the movie um and then we shot it in 97 and um you know and the rest is history but it was definitely born from like the you know first of all camping experiences of just like being in the woods at night and hearing something off there and you, you know it's just a raccoon but you sounds like a damn bear or tyrannosaurus rex um that kind of fear that i always had while i was camping and then also just those in search of shows and those doc pseudo documentaries that that presented like these paranormal things as reality that just that combination was really what what where what uh instigated the idea how uh hard was it to drum up funding for the film 
Dude, it was impossible. I mean, it, you know, it, even now it's just, you know, it, it, financing is always an issue and I always you make people make promises and, you know, 99% of the time when it's time to write the check, they're gone, you know. You know, we we needed about, you know, 15-20,000 or so and we tried to, you know, raise money and we made this tape. We did like an it's called the it was called the investor tape and it was like 8 minutes and it basically just outlined the idea of the movie is like these three filmmakers from Montgomery college um, went into the woods doing a movie, a show about, you know, uh, they were doing a documentary about the Blair witch, you know, this legend in, you know, in Maryland and, and um, this cursed town called Blair that now is called Burkittsville and all this backstory that we had and they they disappeared. And then their footage was found a year later. And then we, as hacks and films, that was the production company we had. And, 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 Greg and I are still part of Hacks and Films. Um, we we were hired by the families to do a documentary about you know the the footage. You know the police couldn't was inconclusive. The police you know looked at the footage and there's nothing. There's no evidence of anything. You know they couldn't find any leads, so they gave it to us. So we did this little you know, eight minutes show, uh, short. And that was what we were trying to, you know, raise money for. And we would like have these meetings where we would like call in, you know, dentists and doctors and people that had money and lawyers and bring them in and, oh my God, we love it, this and that. And then nothing, you know, nothing at all. And then the 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 way that we financed it finally that gave us like our initial push was um, that, that eight minute in, investor reel we somehow, Dan, my partner Dan, had gotten it into the hands of John Pearson, who is this guy who is, at the time, he's like a professor now, but at the time he was kind of like the independent film guru. Like he had helped Spike Lee and, you know, uh, Richard Linklater and, you know, Kevin Smith and Rod, um, he even did um, Michael Moore's, you know, early film. He like, he... He was like the programmer of some theater and he was just very tied in. So he helped with finance. You know, he just was like kind of this guy that helped was at the right place at the right time. And he wrote a, a book, a really good book called Spike, Mike, Slackers and Dykes about, you know, his, you know, his adventures. So we somehow got the tape to him and he called Dan up and he was like, man, this is crazy. I I, I actually lit, am from Maryland and I've never heard of this legend. And Dan was like, well, that's because we made it all up. So he was like, holy crap. He had a show called Split Screen, which was on Bravo. And this was like 19, you know, 98. This is late 90s. So, you know, Bravo was like on a fraction of the screens that it is now. It wasn't really even a real, you know, it was just like a, you know, it was nationwide, but I don't I don't know how many screen, how many people providers, how many cable providers actually had it. But he had this little independent show about basically independent films. And he would just, you know, talk to Spike Lee and, you know, to uh, Kevin Smith. And he had you know, just kind of about making indie movies and just, you know, kind of his take on everything. And he was like, you know, I'll, and we, we went up to his house and we asked, you know, does he want to invest in the movie? You know? And he's like, no, I'm not going to invest in the movie, but what I am going to do is I'm going to pay you for, I'm going to show your investor reel on the cliff, on the final, final episode of my, you know, split screen. And then for the new season, you know, when you guys go out and shoot the movie, you guys will owe me another little eight minute segment of, with the real footage. And I will premiere it on the, you know, on the first show of the third season or whatever it was. And he gave us, you know, money for that. He gave us, you know, advance money. And that was really what 
the majority of the money that we used. And then after that, I think Rob Cowie, which was, who was one of the producers, he started bringing in little bits and here and there. And I think Greg brought in some stuff from his parents and, you know, it was, and it was all people we knew, but it was very difficult to raise the money. I mean, it was, you know, people love the idea, but once it came down to like writing the checks, they were like, nah, I don't know about that. So, um, but yeah, without John Pearson, I'm not sure what we would have done. So we, we always, um, he's still a friend of ours and we've always, you know, we've always thought, you know, that we definitely owe him. So hmm. how hard was it to cast the three, you know, lead actors for the film? It was, it was, um, it was intense and it took a long time because we knew we wanted the, the movie to be improvised. We knew we had a script and basically we had a script without any, you know, dialogue and it was like this, you know, 25 page script with all the beats, but you know, no, 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 no dialogue written. So we knew that the people that we hired were going to have to be really good improv artists, you know, and, and actors like really natural. And, and that's what we wanted to be. We wanted the footage to be as real as possible. We didn't want anything to like, we didn't want any kind of Hollywood trick. We didn't want any lighting, you know, we very basic lighting. We wanted the audio to be bad. We knew that we weren't going to do music, a musical score for the movie. You know, we wanted it to feel like it was a real, you know, a real movie, a real footage shot by these three people. So our audition process, we auditioned like about probably about a thousand people in the end. We auditioned people in LA. We auditioned people in Orlando. We auditioned people here in Washington, DC. And, but then, but New York was really like where, you know, the raw talent, undiscovered talent was. And we put an ad in the, in backstage that said, um, you know, improv, improvisational feature shooting in Maryland in October in the woods, you know, camping experience or, you know, something that it was going to be arduous and don't, you know, you got to know, you got to be camping. It's going to be, you know, basically we try to set up as like, this is not going to be a fun shoot. Um, but I think the improv of it kind of sparked a lot of people's interest you know so i remember like coming into the backstage for the first day of auditioning and going up the steps and um and there's just a line of people and i was like what the hell is this and i show up there to the front we had like two rooms and there's like literally 150 people already in line to audition so i was we were like wow this is crazy and basically what we, we what we developed was we told people, we gave people like an information sheet before they went in and it said, look, the audition starts as soon as you step in the room. You don't need to introduce yourself. You don't need to just, you're in character as soon as you go in there. And we're not looking for like a character. We're looking for you. You know, we're looking for something natural. Don't do an accent. Don't just give us you. And then what we would do is basically the person would come in and we would have their headshot and we would be like, you know, Mike Smith or whatever you, um, you've come to us, you know, in front of this parole board to, you know, to, to tell us, you know, you're to give us to, to, to see if, you know, you want to, if you, if you're released for, a, you know, early, early parole, early release. And obviously it was much more, you know, slick than what I'm saying. I'm trying to remember it, but it was basically you were in front of a parole board and there was no like, Hey, how you doing? You know, sit down. It was more like, Hey, you're in a parole board. Tell us why we should release you. And we didn't even tell them the crime. So some people, a lot of people were like, is this the audition? And we were kind of like, yeah, this is the audition. You know, we told you, but a lot of people just went into it and, 
and it was just was just supernatural. And then we would like switch it up. We would go from that to like, oh my God, you know, Mike, you've you um you scored a perfect 10 on that dive. You know, how do you in the Olympics, how do you feel? And then they'd be like, oh my God, it's you know, so we took them through a bunch of different kind of scenarios. Um but and they were kind of long auditions, you know, and um eventually, you know, there's a lot of people that were really good and a lot of people that were just not not getting it. And uh, we, you know, we kind of brought it down. We did, we had callbacks the next day with like the best 20 or so. And um, we just kept going back to New York every, you know, five or six months and just kind of, you know, bringing people back. And then finally in 97, we did the final casting call and we found Josh, Mike and Heather. And, you know, we just kind of played them against each other, against other people. And there's a lot of really good actors in, in you know, we, we had a backup for pretty much everybody. You know, we had a, you know, but but I think for us, Heather was like, well, Joshua was the first one we hired. He just came into the room and just kind of like kind of epitomized exactly what we were like, what we were looking for. Like Dan and I looked at each other. We're like, well, we you know, I remember like we looked at each other. We're like, well, I, we cast one of them at least. Um, and then Heather and Mike took a little bit of time because we were playing them against Josh, you know, and um, Heather for us freaked us out in this, you know, in the, in the rehearsal space. And we were like, man, they're, you know, she's freaking us out on this, in this, you know, in the middle of New York city and this the air conditioning running and just this, you know, this rehearsal hall in the middle of New York and, you know, the, like the unscariest place in the world and she's freaking us out. So we knew that she was special. And then Mike was just really good and really funny. And just like, was Josh and Heather were like kind of, very serious and Mike just kind of brought in this goofy, you know, brought out the goofiness in them and also just kind of like lighten things up. And uh, so, you know, it was just kind of a combination. He looked very different than Josh. He was kind of a little more built and, you know, short hair, dark hair. And so, you know, we just kind of played them off each other. And that was the combination, you know, that we found that was going to be the most successful. And, and luckily we, we decided correctly. Talk about some of the challenges you faced shooting this film. The biggest challenge was that, you know, we had no money and also we had no idea what the hell we were doing. Like we were, <laughs> you know, it was an experiment, you know, right. like, like people say, you know, Hey, you know, what, what, uh, what's an example of Blair Witch before Blair Witch. And, and for us, it was like, I mean, spinal tap was kind of the only thing that we had to go on. Like it's a fake documentary and we know it's a fake documentary, but, they're using these techniques and that that's what we were planning we were planning basically a fake documentary so there was no blueprint you know what i mean and then spinal taps about, about the furthest away from blair witch as you can get so there wasn't really any blueprint to like you know making the blair witch project so it was a lot of trial and error and it was a lot of collaboration the the biggest challenge was like getting the actors to like really immerse themselves and like kind of not bother them like really like let them be let method like the whole time and our producer greg hale who really was like the third director of the movie he suggested hey why don't we just leave them in the woods the whole time and then we you know and we were like Are you crazy and then but the more we thought about it the more we were like yeah i think we should do that so we greg helped us come up with a system to like guide them and with notes and gps and you know, he developed a system of like base camps and like safety protocols to like, you know, make sure that they wouldn't, 
you know, that they were, in, they were safe the whole time and we were able to get them, you know, get to them quickly. But we basically just made a movie by just leaving the, the actors alone and replenishing their, their supplies, you know, daily, giving them directing notes that they couldn't show to each other three or four times a day and just letting them go you know, letting them shoot our movie. And we, you know, we did a, we, we made good choices and we trusted them and they trusted us. I mean, especially Heather, like it was basically most all men. There's a couple of women um, on the crew, you know, part-timers, but all the full-time people were men and, you know, her co-stars were men and she didn't know anybody. And it was, you know, it was crazy that I think she said that, um, she had like a knife with her, which was, you know, common, you know, you're camping, you're going to have a knife. But I think she was like planning on having that knife as, you know, as protection as well. But she was really courageous. They were all were, you know, and the fact that they let us keep them out there all the time and let, you know, we we started feeding them less and, you know, near the end, because, you know, they were running out of food and just we would have them walk a lot during the day and wake them up in the middle of the night with these weird freaking noises and, um you know, and, and luckily for us and luckily for them, you know, they, they had a, they did a great job. I, you know, they really enjoyed themselves for the most part. They were like, this is the, you know, the most fun I've had and they're very challenging. But so, so that was kind of like just the biggest challenge was trying to keep the actors safe. And also just like trying to um, keep the, uh, uh, you know, tr trying to, to steer the, 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 the boat or trying to steer the ship. Um, cause again, we really did have no idea what the hell we were doing. You know, it was a total experimental kind of film. And I think that we, um, uh, you know, we, we were doubting our, there was a lot of doubts, you know, and, um, uh, you, uh, um, you know, Dan, but all of us, Dan, Greg, and, and I had had a lot of failures in our filmmaking lives um, so there was always this nagging thing of failure in the back of our minds and, you know, you just have to fight through it. Um, but you know, so, you know, and, and, and it was, you know, cold some nights and it was, you know, it rained and there was like physical challenges, but mostly it was just like keeping us, you know, um, going and also just like trying to, you know, looking at each other every once in a while and going, what the hell are we doing? And trying to figure out, you know, how do we steer this ship? And because, you know, again, like what I said, there was no blueprint for making it. We were just inventing it as we went. But it was, you know, exhilarating because it was like, I remember one night walking back um, from, you know, scaring the, 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 you know, Josh, Mike and Heather, you know, it was, I don't know if it was me and Greg or I don't know, it was, I don't know who it was, but I was walking back. And I'm like, you know, man, like, you know, we, we're nothing. We're, we're doing nothing, really. Like, we're nobodies, but we're making this movie. We're doing something that, like, no other filmmaker could do right now. Like, Steven Spielberg cannot make this movie the way we're making it. You know, like, these established filmmakers, you know, because of unions and all that stuff. So we knew we were doing something special, and we were it was cutting edge. But, again, we had no idea if it was going to work. Who invented the idea of the sticks? <laughs> the sticks was i mean i'm not sure who came up with the idea but it was something where like we wanted to have you know because because we kind of went back um and you know in the mythology and was you know and also we wanted um you know we, we needed these creepy things to happen to the you know to the people to to the filmmakers 
but we didn't want, first of all, we had no money and all. And secondly, we wanted it to be very natural. And like, we didn't want like, you know, floating people. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't want anything to be like really crazy and like special effects ridden because we had no money. And also just the, you know, the movie was not, we couldn't, it couldn't hold that. It couldn't sustain that, you know, it was such a small little movie. Um, so it was mostly like just, um, you know, trying to, uh, you know, trying to come up with things that were easy to do and also just that were kind of came out of the natural, you know, location that they were in. So like the rock piles and just, you know, the, the anything that had to do with woods and, and, you know, trees. And then the stick men were just, you know, we, we want to, you know, we, we, all, we love like totems, you know, um, you know, either hieroglyphics or like in sometimes they would hang things and, you know, for, for, you know, for spiritual things, they would, you know, hang, right. you know, there was all tradition of hanging things from trees or just hanging stuff in your house. And, and we love that. And we were like, let's, you know, they, they should come across these crazy looking, you know, stick people. And, you know, and we had the idea that there was going to be thousands of them and, you know, it's just creepy and then, you know, and then, then it came down to actually doing it and, you know, designing it. Ben Rock came up with the prototype, our production designer. And uh, and then we went out there, you know, a couple of days before we were shooting and just built a bunch of stick men, you know, a bunch of different designs and hung them, hung them everywhere. But again, it was just like these, you know, for us, it was like just trying to come up with something creepy and unusual, but based, you know, but definitely rooted in nature and not something, something that like, you know, literally could come out from the, you know, from the earth, you know, nothing, nothing artificial, you know, and, and again, it's like, it lent itself to like the old mythology, the fact that this thing had, you know, the, this witch had been around for 200 years. So there was like, you know, this old fashioned kind of aspect to, you know, to the historical aspect to like the legend, you know, to the folklore. And we kind of wanted to keep it that way. So it was just, you know, um, bundle of sticks and you know you know twine and you know uh, stick figures and rock piles and just you know just very simple kind of things that you know that just kind of were creepy enough just to to, to work you know you know it's funny when i told people you were coming on the show we have a, a twitter group chat and i told people that you were coming on the show and they said that when the movie first came out the the movie the stick men creeped them out so much that their ceiling fans made them made them freak out because it looked like the stick men. Yeah. 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 The five, yeah. The five blades, five blades freaked them out so much. Speaking of uh, people who wanted to ask you a question, this next one, and it was uh, the most overwhelming question of all, what lengths did you have to go to, to keep the cast away from the public eye, to keep up the illusion of the realism? Because some say you invented internet movie marketing and the word viral. And whose idea was it to create the unique film marketing campaign for this film? I mean, it was, as far as the actors were concerned, you know, this was before Facebook and before, you know, even before MySpace. So there was like no, there was very little accountability online. Like you couldn't really, it wasn't very reliable. Like you couldn't really find somebody and, you know, uh, you still had to have like a detective who knew what they were doing and this and that. So you know, they were fairly, e they were completely easy to hide while we were editing the movie because they, you know, they had no social media presence. There was no social media back then. And, you know, obviously none of them were famous. So it wasn't like, oh my God, you know, Heather just got cast in the new Scorsese movie. And what are we going to, you know, there was none of that, you know, I mean, lucky for us, unlucky for them, but 
it, it worked out in the end. And then the only time we really, once Artisan bought the movie, they were like, no, we're going to, you know, we want to market this as like real, as a, you know, real movie, like, like it really happened. And we, and we were, you know, while we were making this movie, we had a lot of discussions about how do you market this movie? Like, do you tell people that it's not real? Do you tell people that it's, that's, do you fool people? And we felt that like telling people that this movie was real was like just really dishonest. And we felt that like there was going to be a crazy backlash you know, people getting angry and stuff and demanding their money back. We had no idea. I mean, we, you know, we were not real filmmakers. We were just, you know, no, novices at the time, you know, so we had no idea how the film marketing world worked or any of that stuff. Um, and then Artisan was like, first one, no, we're going to market it as real. And and our website was built. I, I built the website, the original website, and it was basically just out of necessity. The, the split screen show that I talked to you got that to you before when they showed the episodes, they became the most popular thing on his website, which was just basically back then it was basically, you know, a little bit of information. And then they had discussion boards. That was the big thing. And their discussion, the discussion board became all about Blair Witch. Like, Oh my God, is this real? And I, I've heard of this and this and that. This can't be real, whatever. And then when we went in the, with the first one, it blew up. And then the second one, which was like, after we had shot the movie, that one really blew up and, you know, and uh, actually John Pearson reached out to us and was like, dude, you got to do your own website because your guys are taking over my websites, becoming the Blair Witch site. So I had had a little bit of website building experience and um, I just started building the site. And and we for, for us, the site was like, you know, we wanted to we were like, OK, if, if we really got hired by Heather's mom to do a documentary about, you know, this footage, how would we market it? How would we you know, how what would the website look like? So we just started laying it out, you know, the way we thought it would be uh, laid out. And it was just kind of out of necessity. It was the only thing we could afford. You know, we, we got free hosting from somebody that we knew and I was doing it for free. So we basically marketed the movie at this, at least at that time for free. And we, you know, it was very successful. We had, you know, and it doesn't sound like anything these days, but we had 10,000 people on our mailing list by the time we went to Sundance, which was huge for that time, you know? So we definitely knew that there was some, there was an appetite for this kind of thing. But again, we were like really afraid of the backlash. And then once artisan bought it, they were like, no, we're going to treat it as real. They came up with the plan of like, you know, we're not going to interview. We're going to like have a, you know, like a blackout for the first two weeks of the release, you know, so basically no interviews with Heather, Mike and Josh. So, so Greg, um, you know, Dan and I, who were the directors, we kind of took over that spot. You know, we were the ones that were interviewed and did most of the press, you know, especially the early press. And, you know, and, it, and we didn't, you know, again, we weren't, we were, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And we were like, well, I guess these guys know what they're doing. So it was very much, you know, it was, it was weird because we didn't, we didn't want the movie to like, you know, to be, to piss people off. And we thought that, you know, lying to them in that way was going to piss people off. But, you know, generally speaking, I think people loved, you know, dug that aspect of it. I mean, I know there's a lot of people who hate the movie. I think the people that, that loved it, like really loved that part of it and loved kind of being fooled. And they were like kind of in on it for a little while. And, and would, then would take other people, Hey, oh, this is real. And like, you know, would kind of get in on the joke. So that was, that was a huge part of the success of Blair, Witch is the fact that people, made it their own, you know, and made it like kind of part of like, oh, and that, you know, I, I get, there's so many stories of people saying, oh, I took my sister and I 
did, I took my mom to the, see the movie or I showed it on VHS to my sister and I said it was real and <laughs> just people kind of using it as a kind of a prank, you know? And uh, I think that's what led to a lot to kind of the, the proliferation of, of, of Blair Witch in, in the media and in the, you know, in, in, you know, let kind of led to like the phenomenon of, you know, of what happened and just the craziness that nobody expected, you know? Hmm. Favorite memories from Sundance? Sundance was, no, I mean, it was great. You know, we got there and we, you know, we found out immediately that all the showings had been, had sold out and we were, we got in, we went in there with a lot of heat because of the website and, we were kind of written up as one of the movies, one of the most anticipated movies to watch at Sundance. And, and, you know, we were like, you know, Sun, we knew Sundance built careers and we were just really excited. And that was really our main goal at these, at least early on, we had no idea what was going to happen after Sundance, but our main goal was like, let's go to Sundance and sell the movie. So we realized, we knew that we had a really good shot at selling the movie and, you know, and everything was gravy, man. It was, you know, it was, we got there and, we um, sold the film immediately and there was a, you know, line, there was a wait line, you know, outside the, the Egyptian, the first screening and they added another screening and that one sold out immediately. And um, first time I met Roger Ebert, you know, um, he, uh, he was eating a sandwich and he shook my hand and he got a little bit of mayonnaise or something on my hand. And I was like, I didn't care. Um <laughs> He was about to go in. He's like, I heard a lot of good things about your movie, you know? And um, I'm like, oh, I hope you like it. You know, I mean, talking to Roger Ebert was, I mean, I don't even know what the hell, you know, uh, I don't know what I was doing, you know, what I was thinking. But, um, you know, it was, again, it, became, it came out and it was, you know, we we sold it. And so all the, you know, we sold it immediately the first night. So the rest of the time there was just kind of like enjoying it and doing press. You know, we first learned the, the, I guess, I mean, it's, it's a necessary evil and it's not really evil, but it, you know, it, it helps obviously. And you want as much press as possible, but we felt the first kind of tinges of like what it is to, to do a press tour and just like the demands of like talking about the same thing over and over again, you know, 10 times a day, taking pictures for premiere and for, you know, cinema, American cinematographer and just, you know, all the, you know, all that craziness that goes along with a hit with a Sundance hit. Um, and, um, so, you know, and it was cool. It was, you know, we, we, you know, we thought we had money, even though we, they didn't pay us for a long time. We didn't, you know, we had to deliver the movie still. So we were still broke, but there was this sense of like relief of like, Oh my God, we, at least we sold it. And, you know, we could pay our investors back and we can pay ourselves a little bit of money and, you know, whatever. And then, you know, and obviously we had no idea what, the movie was going to do and whether well, it was, you know, and then, then, you know, the shock of like later on finding out that it was going to go theatrical and, you know, so it was, um, it was great, you know, great memories and, you know, all the actors were there and a lot of people that had all the, you know, all the people from Maryland that had helped with the shoot, you know, a lot of my friends came up and with us and shared the moment and, um, you know, that had actually worked on the movie, you know, it was a very much a family thing. And, you know, it was, you know, it was amazing. It was really amazing, amazing time in my life. Roger Ebert, you mentioned him just briefly, went on to call it an extraordinarily effective horror film. Were you prepared and are you, you know, still amazed at the blockbuster power of the release of that original film? Yeah, I mean, it was a total shock. Um, I mean, we knew we had some cool you know, we knew we had something effective. Um, but again, like, again, Roger Ebert, you know, 
critiquing one of your movies, reviewing one of my movies. That was just something that was, you know, that was a thing of like a childhood dream, you know? So, so there was always these things of like, you know, momentum and like there was stuff that was happening and, and um, you know, we heard more and more about it and people were, you know, the, the press was, you know, asking about it. And we were, you know, just, we got these really cool, you know, I, I mean, these really kind of high end agents from LA and we got a lawyer and, you know, it was, we had a press, you know, a press agent. And, uh, you know, so it was like, you know, there was crazy momentum and then, and then, but, but, you know, for us, like, you know, again, like I was saying earlier, like El Mariachi and, you know, um, you know, Robert Rodriguez's first film and like, you know, even, you know, she's got to have it or even clerks, like that was our kind of like, that was the home run. You know what I mean? Like, Oh my God, if we could get in the theaters and we can make a couple million bucks, that's a home run. You know, that's the biggest thing you're ever going to do. So when the movie like started tracking to like really compete, you know, with, big summer blockbusters that's when it started getting kind of scary you know and and started realizing that holy crap man this is you know this is building a ton of momentum so once it came out and you know we saw the lines around the block and the you know the um, we we went to the uh the we were showing at the angelica uh, new york it's a new york city um kind of um you know uh, legendary cinema and you know they had it on three screens and they 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 had they had the pre they had the first you know wednesday and thursday they were the only theater that had blair witch and you know i remember going up to the theater and every single showtime through wednesday thursday friday saturday sunday and even the next week were sold out like they just had you know wednesday sold out thursday sold out friday sold out Saturday. you know like so people were buying tickets for the following week you know um that was an amazing thing, you know? And, um, and again, it was just like completely, you know, uh, I mean, you know, just, just, you know, like we hadn't even, you can't call it a dream because we were not, we never dreamed that, you know, our dreams were so much, you know, more realistic, you know, like no, you know, no movie had ever done what this movie had done. And that was just, again, I always tell people this, like, there was part of me that was, you know, proud and very blessed to have been a part of this movie and be part of it. But also as a spectator, I was like, just kind of amazed by it. You know what I mean? Like I, sometimes I, f I would forget that it was my movie, you know? Um, and uh, so it was just, you know, a crazy thing. And, and, and it was, and eventually we, you know, we realized that it was a worldwide thing. Like it was successful in a lot of different places. And, and I wish, and years later, I was shooting a movie in China and Hong Kong and the the crew, the, you know, during the shoot, they would just come to me either through an interpreter or with their limited English and be like, you know, Blair Witch. And they would tell me their Blair Witch story. I'm like, this is literally on, on the other side of the world. And they're telling me their Blair Witch story, you know, like how they, you know, told brought their mother and told her it was real and this, you know or how much it scared them and they went home and, you know, there was, you know, whatever, just these little stories that I get, you know, that we had gotten from a lot of different places, but, you know, just, it kind of opened my eyes like, Oh my God, this movie was it's something else, you know? So, you know, and now looking back on it, you know, it is like this, um, you know, it was just like this explosion that none of us expected. And, and it was a blessing and a curse, you know, in many ways, but mostly a blessing and, you know, it gave me a career and I'm talking to you because of it, you know, 25 years later. And, 
it has given me my life and has, you know, allowed me to, to have a house and to buy a bunch of star Wars crap and, you know, get married and have kids. And I owe so much of my life to, to this movie. And now I owe my television career to it. And, uh, so, you know, it was this, um, crazy thing that happened and you know and again i've always tell people i'm like you know i just feel incredibly blessed that i that i was a small that you know i'm not i guess not small but that i was a part of it because it was super collaborative like without the actors it wouldn't have worked without dan it wouldn't have worked without greg uh, without mike and rob without everybody involved and then all the serendipity that happened around the movie um all the way up until its release you know there was um you know it's just like we had to um, thank the film gods. And I still thank the film gods for, you know, blessing us in this way. Last comment about the Blair Witch Project. Wasn't it released around the same time as the Phantom Menace? Yes. Yes, it was. It was. And, and um, I remember um, there was a, a, a person from, uh, there was a, a woman that we knew from film school and um, that had gone to film school and we had kept in touch with her and she was working for some kind of, marketing or something for a studio and she called us like early in the in 2000 and in, in, in 1999 before it was released and she was like do you guys understand that your movie is like tracking better than any other movie other than phantom menace like <laughs> you know like you know because they you know they do these tests where they're like have you heard of this these movies and he, she said that every that it was amazing how much notoriety our film had you know for being a twenty thousand dollar movie you know compared you know it was like competing with phantom menace you know um so you know and also look I'm, you know obviously i'm a star wars fan so that was a very exciting time for me like i was gonna get a new you know movie and then my movie was coming out and it was just a cool time for me and uh you know and, and then eventually like that later that year we went out and to skywalker ranch and you know we 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 were invited out you know uh and toured it and you know it was just and had this you know never met george lucas but had this relationship with his place and with his work and with you know the, the, you know my my childhood freaking hero and um and that was really special too like to be able to go to skywalker ranch and then we mixed our our next two films there and it was just like you know it's a dream come true you know but yeah it was it, it was an amazing it was an amazing ride it was just i remember because sixth sense came out a couple of weeks after we came out and I remember talking to when I met M Knight years, you know, a few years later at a rap party, and and he was like, "Dude, you know, like there hadn't been a really good horror movie in like five or six years at least, you know." And I, you know, I was my movie was tracking, and we knew we had a good movie, and then your fucking you know movie comes out right before mine, and you know, and I'll you know, and I I feel like we helped him, you know, because we kind of. Right. you know got the you know the the engine going i guess you know the the horror like oh my god a scary movie and then oh another scary movie you know so i think we primed the pump for him a little bit but and he, he wasn't angry or anything but he was just like he you know he couldn't believe it he's like oh my god i can't believe that you know the timing but it ended up being you know the the you know phantom menace blair witch project sixth sense american pie summer you know well, so um the mummy Mummy, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, I think my best friend's wedding was a big movie then. Um, yeah. Julia Roberts. So you know, it was, yeah, and again, man, to be in the same you know paragraph as these, you know, multi-million-dollar movies, studio movies with like huge stars, you know, was just not 
it was not a normal thing, you know? Right. And, um, you know, it, and we knew it wasn't a normal thing. Like we knew that like, man, this is, this is one in a million. This is never going to happen to us again. I mean, this is, you know, so we, you know, try to enjoy it as much as we could. Okay, Devon Nation, we are going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Eduardo Sanchez. Make sure you take this time to refresh our drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know, that's right, Cluzo style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Please pay attention to a few friends of my show, and we will be right back. It's time to feel the rage. Join us on Film Rage, where we talk movies, current releases, coming attractions, streaming, and classic films as well. Directors and actors, beware as you cannot hide from the rage. My name is Bryce, and I'm part of the Film Rage crew, which also includes Jim. Hey, hey. And Murray. Yo. Why is it you always talk? All the time. I can't understand I why you voice. voice. This is the Merman, the voice of reason. These two can't agree on anything most of the time. Some movies are Mondo, some are just Every week, something is going to make us rage. Join us every Wednesday and feel the rage. Hello, Duvall Nation. Derek Duvall here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek DeBall Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. Hey, it's Michelle Fabre, and you're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can hear my brand new single, I'm All That I Need, on all streaming platforms right now. Too young for this track. The final frontier. These are the voyages of... MC, Troy, and Eric. Their mission to introduce Tyler to strange new episodes. To seek out the best and worst media in the Star Trek franchise. To boldly go where several podcasts have probably gone before. You can listen to these goobers talk about Star Trek by searching for Too Young for This Trek or by visiting probablywork.com. Hi, this is Glenn. 
and this is Sonia from Echo Valley. And you are listening to the Derek Duval Show. Here's a song called Faces in the Mirror from our album Anarchy and Alchemy. Craving a cinematic thrill? Join Too Many Captains, four friends who choose a new release in theaters and look back at an important film that influenced it. Tune in weekly for your ultimate movie fix. We break down everything from the story structure to the budget versus box office and the masterminds behind cinema classics. Think Damien Chazelle, Catherine Bigelow, Alejandro Gonzalez, and Rick Close enough. We dish hot takes on A-list stars we all know or mispronounce. Like Ralph Finesse, Seorsi Ronan, and Shewelta Ijafor. You get the gist. Find us at moviepodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Join the fun as three fanboys and an ADHD buddy dive into film history. Too Many Captains, your film podcast fix. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, a veteran's journey from homeless to hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 204 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with film and television director Eduardo Sanchez. What do you remember from your time on the show from Dust Till Dawn? Just being really nervous. Cause it was my first, it was my first TV show. And, um, Robert Rodriguez called me and was like, Hey, I'm doing this, doing this network. And I want it to be more, you know, Hispanics and, you know, Latinos and writers and directors and actors. And he was like, I'm doing dust till dawn. And, you know, I want you to come in and direct. And I was like, all right, cool. But little did I know that he was going to have me be like, like he directed the first two episodes. And then I came in right after him, like to the third episode for my first television show ever. And also, you know, it's Robert Rodriguez's crew who, you you know, pretty much 95% of the time just works with him. But it was really a great time and everybody was very cool. And, you know, I, it was instant family. I remember, you know, Carlos Cotto, the the um, the showrunner, was just another a Cuban guy. And him and I got along. We're still friends. Just really cool guy and gave me so much support. And Robert, when he was around, you know, was was cool. And he was Robert, you know, he's Robert Rodriguez. So, um, but it was just an amazing experience for me. And I and it really it led to my other, my next TV gig. And it really kind of legitimized me, you know, as a television director. And that's kind of what I do now all the time. So I'm, I'm very grateful to that. So American Horror Stories is a powerhouse franchise. What's it like to make a contribution to that show? I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was really uh, intimidating, Um, you know, like Ryan Murphy's, you know, he's one of the top, you know, TV people, if not the top 
you know, television producer, writer, director. Um, so I was really scared, you know, um, you know, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, I know what I'm doing, you know, but again, you're like every, every show, when, when you go into a new show, um, you know, you, you're working with new people, usually, you know, 99% of the people are new. Sometimes you, you know, meet people that you've met before you've worked with before. And that's great. You always have little friends and stuff like that, but it's usually, you know, you got to meet everybody. You got to get into the system. You got to learn the system very quickly and you got to like, you know, be, um, proactive and you have to like be, you know, a positive, you know, um, cog in the wheel, let's say. And, um, you know, so, so for me, it was like, you know, I, I, I've been doing that for years and I knew how to do it, but there was something about, you know, going and doing this that was really intimidating. And it was a cool um, opportunity because it was like, a, it was, you know, what it was a spinoff of the original show. And it was like, um, there were like little movies. Each episode was like a, its own little movie. So it was like an experiment and um, there, you know, the, the scripts were very ambitious and when I got there, the, I was, I don't know if I was a third or fourth episode and they were already having some, some logistical issues just because in a normal TV show, you have a couple of weeks of prep and you have a couple of weeks of, of shooting, but the prep, you know, it's, it's usually enough time to prep because you've already got the main cast. You've already got most of the locations, you know, like you usually have like one set that you, you know, there's the main set and, you know, everybody knows, you know, what's going on, you know, and everything for this, it was like a little mini movie every time. So when I got there, they were already kind of having, they were trying to figure out how, you know, the best way to do it. So there was a little bit of like, just, um, a little bit of, you know, running around with their heads cut off a little bit. You know what I mean? Like that thing of like, oh my God, we, we don't have time and we're trying to push this and this and whatever. But again, you know, it's the best people and all professionals and just trying to do their best work. And, uh, and it was cool. It was, I, I worked with Manny Cotto, who was actually Carlos Cotto's brother from Dust Till Dawn. So and I had worked with Manny before on uh, another show called The Passage, or not at The Passage, um, Next. He was the showrunner on that. And luck, uh, unfortunately, Manny died earlier this year. And um, he was a, it was a great loss to, to just television and film. It was fun with him, but it was very stressful because, you know, you had this, first of all, it was, you know, you had a lot of tools, you know, like that, you know, that they there's no there's no it's not low budget you know television but everybody has like a lot of the people in the production the actors and the people working behind the scenes it was the first time a lot of them was the first time that they were working for ryan murphy so there was just like me so there was this level of like you know stress of like you don't don't mess this up man don't fuck this up but Overall, it was a cool experience. There was, uh, you know, the, the episode came out cool. It was one of the one of the more popular episodes of the season, and really proud of it. And uh, and you know, it was cool. It was cool being in LA and you know working for Ryan Murphy and um, you know and uh, just kind of learn seeing a little sliver of that world was just fascinating. What's it like to be asked to direct an episode of Star Trek: uh, Strange New Worlds? 
Dude, that was, I mean, that was really a dream come true. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm a big Star Wars fan, but I'm also a big Star Trek fan. It was something that as a kid, you know, especially like later in high school, I discovered I, it and I just watched it. I would tape, you know, I would tape the the syndication, you know, the runs and watch them. And it was just such a treat for me to watch. You know, to, I love the show, you know? And um, so, and it was kind of weird because timing, because, and I know you, you started the the interview with the COVID thing, but like during COVID, you know, I, I've, I've been a big fan of Star Trek, but I had never really seen any of the new shows. Like I'd seen a little bit of Next Generation and loved, every time I watched it, I loved it, but I never had like gotten into the practice of actually watching this is before streaming. So, you know, you had to find, you had to find where and it was on and, you know, it was a little bit, you know, more challenging. And also I was in film school and I was, you know, there, I was doing other things and, you know, I was just not into like, just not a lot, not watching a lot of television in those days. So, so COVID struck and I was like, you know, I'm going to watch, I'm going to watch every single Star Trek episode, you know, everything from and in chronological order. So, you know, it, it started, I think, I guess with discovery was the first thing and then enterprise and then, or, you know, some, and then, and then the original series and then the cartoons and then, um, next generation and then, uh, deep space nine. And, um, you know, uh, you know, you know, you, you get it. So, you know, like now they're up to like, you know, almost 900 episodes of television. So I actually, during COVID, I watched everything and I'm still, I'm, I'm actually on the third uh, season of discovery now, which is, I'm getting right to the end of it now, but I watched, you know, like 800 plus episodes of, of star Trek. And then at the end of this run there, a you, you, they want you to, you know, come in and direct a strange new worlds. And I was like, and it was just a dream come true, man. I still don't believe that I did it. You know, there's still like, um, you know, um, just sh shooting, first of all, shooting with like, you know, recast, but like original characters, Spock and Uhura and, you know, just, just, you know, I never imagined that I would be directing Spock, you know, and it's weird because I, it was funny because I kept calling, um, I kept saying Kirk and Spock and Kirk, you know, Kirk and Spock, because, you know, obviously they're, that's the duo and it, you know, it was Pike and, and Spock. So luckily Anson didn't hear me, you know, call him Kirk. But it was just, it was an amazing experience. It was a little bit overwhelming because, you know, you, again, you don't want to mess it up, but just everybody was so cool and the cast was cool. And, you know, I think the cast, I did the second season, but the first, I did the third episode, I think, or fourth episode of the second, of the second season, but the first season hadn't aired yet. So the, you know, they had had a little bit of a run on this, on discovery, but they hadn't you know, been full, you know, the show hadn't come out yet. So they were all kind of like, not, they, they hadn't blown up yet. It hadn't, you know, they weren't, they were kind of working in Star Trek, but not experiencing the whole, you know, circus around that. Um, but they were all, you know, really good people. And, and, and they, I felt like everybody felt really, you know, lucky to be and fortunate to be a part of this show, you know, and, and um, I loved working on the enterprise and like, you know, working on the bridge doing scenes on the bridge of the enterprise and then you know the 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 turbo lift you know the the sound you know the 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 doors opening and people coming through and just you know these iconic things from the original epic uh, series that I was you know that I never imagined that I would be you know directing Star Trek 
Um, and also my episode was very much kind of, um, it was, um, it had a really old, and I, the whole show, you know, that's what people I think love about it. Strange New Worlds has a feel like kind of old school um, Star Trek feel, the original series. And my episode like was, it was, it could have been written as a, you know, it, it could have come right out of the original series. It was very much like, you know, planet and this happens and something on the enterprise and they're on the planet. And it was just, you know, these, you know, funky outfits and, you know, uh, I got to shoot on the, on the volume, which is that big, you know, um, interactive space where they, they, it's all led walls and the, 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 it moves as the camera moves and it looks, you know, like real, but it was, you know, it was amazing. It was, it was an amazing experience and, um, and, uh, just a lot of fun. I, the, the, the writer Davey was, um, really cool and we really got along and we're still friends and um you know it was uh you know again it was one of those moments where I was like kind of pinching myself every couple hours on set and you know wondering how the hell I got here you know <laughs> I want to talk to you about your latest film that you released which you know saw you return to you know big screen directing after a decade yeah El, El Vampiro am I saying that correct El Vampiro El yeah. Vampiro I apologize yeah. I apologize yeah, no problem uh, what inspired this film, first of all, and you know, what did it mean being asked to join the Satanic Hispanics anthology? I mean, it was, you know, it's you know, anytime you're asked to do an anthology, it's an honor because you know people are, you know, they recognize your work and, um, you know, the whole thing. And also, anthologies are cool because you usually get, you know, you get to do things that don't that you usually don't get to do. You know, the the so I was um, Alejandro Bruges and uh, Mike Mendez were the producers and. I, I, you know, I knew Alejandro from a lot of other things. We met on Dust Till Dawn and we had done a couple of, sh you know, t had, had uh, sold a couple of TV shows together. Um, so he was like, hey, man, we're doing this movie and it's going to be Latinos. And, and you know, and I was like, I mean, you know, I, I, I love anthologies, but I've done a few of them, but they either can go really well or some of them go really bad, you know, it's just and so I was like a little hesitant. But then he's like, it's called Satanic Hispanics. And I was like, all right, I'm in, man. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> how, how do I turn down the title like that? Um, and it was really cool because you get to do whatever you want. And I I've, you know, like when I was younger, I did a lot of comedy stuff. Like I never thought I would be a horror director. I, I always thought that I would either be doing comedies or action movies because that was kind of my, you know, my, my prime, my sweet spot when I was younger. And, um, and uh, so it was, I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do something fun and just kind of goofy. And I read, you know, Mike, Mike and uh, Alejandro scripts and they were, you know, they're, especially Alejandro's was very goofy. And I was like, all right, I can get away with this. And it was just really cool, man, because I, I, the, I met this guy named Henke Madera, this the actor Henke Madera was from Queen of the South and him and I had become friends during the shooting. And we had always talk you know we we still chat and we were like let's do something together and you know whatever and we were always planning it so i came uh the the idea of el vampiro came across my desk and i was like oh my god this would be hemke would be great in this and and it gave him a chance to to you know flex his comedy chops which he rarely gets to do and he's a really funny guy genuinely very talented actor but a, but also a very talented comedic actor and I just kind of, you know, it, it was kind of something where like, um, 
you know, there wasn't really that much directing to do, you know, it was like, um, he, he was just perfect. It was, you know, and then he brought in Patricia Velasquez, who's the played his wife and they had such great chemistry and they took, you know, my movie's funny and really goofy, but at the end it has like this very sweet kind of sensitive, like it's the, probably the most little, like the most sensitive part of that horror movie, which is, you know, it's not a, has this romantic kind of feeling at the end this you know this bittersweet kind of ending and um it's hard to it's not a it's a it's a weird thing to have in a horror movie you know um but they brought it out and um you know and you know just i was just really proud of it and um you know it was uh and and then everybody you know all the other filmmakers um uh Gigi guerrero and uh demian um and uh uh you know just like rugna just like you know just amazing filmmakers and uh i was really you know again because of blair witch it was another opportunity that i got and i was just i just felt really honored and blessed to have been you know been a part of it you know how much fun was it to utilize you know practical effects for this film i mean you know i i'm i'm always you know i'm always a fan a big fan of practical effects um you know like i think that giving people you know the actors especially like something to look at and something to feel and something to touch i think is very important um and also you know i grew up in the 80s and the 70s where everything was practical you know so um i tend to use cg only when it's absolutely necessary you know or just to clean certain things up or you know like we had to use it for fire inside a church because we weren't allowed to you know light our actor on fire inside a church unfortunately um so you know it was stuff like that but i loved it i mean it was you know the movie has like this old kind of hammer style you know horror movie like you know just very harsh lighting and very colorful and kind of over the top performances and and um and i think the practical nature of all the you know blood and stuff and you know uh the gore and the you know was you know, really kind of lent itself very well to that style of filmmaking. And, um, and, you know, I think we pulled off something cool. And also I got to shoot the movie, you know, locally here, you know, in Frederick, which I, where I, where I live, which I rarely get to do. Um, so it was kind of a win-win and then, then, you know, we got theatrical and it was the first time I'd seen, you know, one of my movies in the theater for a while. And, you know, it was cool. It was very, especially being in TV for so long, um, you know, you kind of forget what it's like to make movies. And, uh, so it was cool. I mean, it was stressful because it was my first film in a long time. Um, and you, I, I usually kind of, um, the, the responsibility of that kind of weighs on me a lot more than the, than television stuff. But, um, in the end I was, you know, it was, I was glad to do it. And, and you know, and all the, all the films in the movie are, are really good. So it was good to be part of, um, of something special like that what's the reaction to the film been like i mean people love the film i mean you know it's it's definitely a low budget small film and it's not for everybody but it you know it has like i don't know 91 percent on rotten tomatoes and it's and um it you know it really is the all the filmmakers involved are all like horror filmmakers like they have it in their blood you know so so i think that it it plays it played really well at fantastic fest at the festivals i think it plays really well with horror fans you know and and again like i think that the the idea of of um you know centering 
you know the 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 theme or the 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 common glue of the movie being you know as many as latino filmmakers and you know trying to show a little bit a different side of you know of, of who we are and you know bringing these visions to 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 life and these um you know and it's not that all they're all all the actors are hispanic and it's all you know there's a couple there's two movies that are in spanish and the rest are in english and, and some are mixed mine is mine has a little bit of spanish and mostly uh english but it is the idea of like you know examining you know our mythology and and also just having fun with it and and for me like having a Henki Madera playing a a vampire was just too too good to be true you know too 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 good to pass up I guess you know mm. so so I'm, I'm I was happy we did it. Where is Lionsgate with developing the rumored Blair Witch TV series? Oh my God. I, I mean, you, you should ask them. I, I, you know, if you can get any information from them, I would appreciate it. Um, you know, I mean, you know, the, the Lionsgate is, a, is, you know, they, they own the, you know, they own Blair Witch and they, uh, and, and I have a, we have a weird relationship. I have a weird relationship with them. I mean, I, I know the marketing people and I know the video game people that, and I helped with, I help with, certain things that are released i you know i i do uh you know the, i'm friendly with them as far as like marketing like i helped them when they released the the video game i helped them with when I re they released the hunter killer um series so they do kind of reach out to me and i do kind of keep in touch a little bit but as far as like what they're doing with it i i've i hear things a lot of most of the stuff i hear is from other filmmakers like i knew years ago a few years ago they they we're thinking of doing a movie and because a lot of people would come up to, you know, friends of mine, be like, Hey, I, I pitched a new Blair Witch movie to, to Lionsgate. And, you know, so I think everybody and their mother pitched Blair Witch stuff to, to them. And then I know they went down the road with a couple of like bigger horror filmmakers, but I don't, it didn't end up anywhere. I'm not sure. Cause the thing about, you know, and I don't know if this is still the case, but, at least the my my uh, the way I see it is that Lionsgate still thinks of Blair Witch as like a low budget kind of you know um, property, um, and I think that like we we wrote a, a sequel to that to the to our original movie like ten years ago, and um, it was a really good script and they actually loved it and they gave, you know, they were like really enthusiastic about it. But once, you know, it was like a four or $5 million movie. Once they got to the point of like green lighting it, they were like, uh, I don't know if we're going to spend that much money on a Blair Witch movie. So they, and you know, and then the, the 2016 Blair Witch movie was pretty low budget. I think it was a couple million dollars. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure what their appetite is as far as like really spending like real money on like bringing in, you know, like, a, a, you know, a, a big established, you know, horror filmmaker. I'm not sure that they could, you know, I'm not sure what they're doing. And then the idea for the television show was um, we actually, they, uh, you know, we, we uh, years ago I was doing an interview and I told somebody that, um, they asked me the same question, like, what's going on with Blair Witch? And I'm like, you know, I don't know what's going on with Blair Witch, but it really, it makes sense. The most sense right now would be to do a TV show because I think you could examine, it doesn't have the pressure of the movie. You know what I mean? Cause the movie is like a one event thing, TV shows. And especially now with, you know, streaming and everything like TV is really the, you know, has really 
you know, it's, it's a really great place to tell stories. I mean, I think there's probably better stories being told on television than in cinema these days, you know, for the most part. And um, so I said, I think they should do a TV show. And then <clears throat> a couple of days later, <clears throat> sorry, my, um, my agent was like, Hey, I'm getting some calls about this Blair Witch TV show. What's going on? I'm like, dude, there's nothing going on with it. I mean, just, you know, so Lionsgate actually reached out to us and was like, what do you, you know, do you have any ideas or whatever? So we actually pitched a show, a TV show with them. I don't know, I guess probably six or seven years ago now. Um, so we keep getting these at bats, but it, you know, obviously it didn't happen. So we do keep getting like the, they keep calling us and we do, we get our at bats, but we, you know, we end up striking out basically. Um, uh, so I don't know what's going on right now with them. I know that they reached out to some, um, we had a meeting with um, somebody, I don't really want to mention the name, but it was a big actor producers company that we reached out to them and pitched them some stuff, but I haven't heard anything about it. So, and I always tell people, I'm like, look, I don't know what's going on, but honestly, I wouldn't surprise, it wouldn't surprise me if they announced something like today or tomorrow, like, Hey, they're doing this, you know, <laughs> um, we, they don't really keep us in the loop very much. Um, and it's not like we're have an unfriendly relationship with them, but we don't, you know, we're not like, communicating with them all the time um and um and you know especially for this like the 25th anniversary is coming up and they haven't reached out to us at all about anything special like or, a four, like know. a 4k or something like that yeah there's nothing and and we are actually it, it was an, it's an, another company reached out to us that licensed Blair Witch from Blair from Lionsgate and they're doing like a Blu-ray, a special edition, and we're helping them. But it's just weird that, like, um, not sure if Lionsgate's themselves are going to do anything for the 25th anniversary, which is weird because it's a good opportunity to, you know, put the movie in theaters again for limited run. And, you know, it's, you know, it's still a very recognizable movie. You know what I mean? Like, it still has a very high, um, you know, everybody knows, even if they've never even seen the movie, everybody knows about that. So, um I'm not sure what's going on with it. You know, I know they they have a, a, a an escape room in Las Vegas um, themed, you know, Blair Witch thing, which is cool. Uh, I've never, I haven't gone to it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Hopefully, it doesn't close down before I can get down there. But um, you know, so they they are exploiting it in certain ways. You still see, like you see T-shirts and you know, there's like merchandise and stuff. But I'm not sure what the overall plan is over there for for Blair Witch. Crazy. Yeah, De Coubertin said the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. You get a chance to talk to your younger self. What would you say to him? You know, don't give up. You know, um, it's, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's ups and downs in life, just you know, in filmmaking, just like there is in life. And um, you got to kind of weather through the bad parts. And, and like you were just saying, like, you know, you do learn a lot more from your failures than you do your successes, you know? Um, so, uh, don't be afraid to fail and, uh, use it as a, you know, use it as a learn, as the learning experience it is. And, um, you know, and, and no time is wasted, you know, on a film set, you know, when you're making a movie, you know, cause even though it's not successful or even though people don't like it, or sometimes, you know, even the the even on on you know television shows that I do like you know sometimes they come out great and sometimes you know not so great whatever you know you try to do the best work but regardless of what you're doing you you're always learning 
So use that opportunity, even if you know it's going to be, if, if it's not going the way you want it to go, or, you know, you're disappointed, just use it as a learning experience and realize that any day on the set is a learning, you're going to learn something. That's just the way it is, you know? So, um, you know, that that's what I would tell. That's what I tell people too, is just, you know, don't be so hard on yourself and just learn, learn from your mistakes. So what's next for Eduardo? Uh, I'm, you know, we, the strike, the act, the writer strike and the, you know, the actor strike is still kind of putting everything on hold right now. I mean, the writers are, you know, the, the, I think the, the, um, the, the, at least the agreement has been done and we're voting on it now. So I'm, and it's expecting to pass. The actors are still working on it, but we're, you know, everybody's hopeful that the actors situation will, you know, they'll figure it out in the next couple of weeks. So everybody's hoping that maybe later in, you know, November or maybe in January, we're back to doing things. So for me, I, I, um, there's a show, there's a Peacock show called Hysteria, which is a really cool, um, uh, it's like an eighties, uh, horror show kind of more adult, you know, um, oriented. Um, but I was supposed to go and shoot, my episode in the summer and co you know, and then the, the strike hit and you know, that was the end of that. So I'm expect, I, I, I have to go back and do, I'm assuming that, you know, I'm going to have to go back and, and, you know, the, the show is going to start production again and, you know, I'll be back. Hopefully that probably be the first thing I do. And then I'm doing, um, I got hired to, to do a feature film, which is my first feature film in a long time called the last breath. And, uh, it's just a horror movie from um, some producers out of, I guess, LA, you could say, but they're you know, very established producers. And we're um, now the strike is over with the, the writers. Now we're, we're reworking the script and, you know, getting some, getting that ready. And then we're about to go out to actors and kind of going down that road. So I'm excited about that. I'm scared about it too. You know, it's my first feature in a long time. And um, you know, so I'm, you know, they're very cautious, but the script is good. And, you know, I think we could do something cool after that. Uh, my partner, Greg Hale, who, who we always have TV shows that were usually horror shows that we are developing. So we'll eventually go and start pitching some new shows and, uh, and, you know, and that's kind of it, you know, uh, I'm also, um, executive producing some low budget horror films here in Maryland where I live and I'm having a pretty good time doing that, just helping out and, you know, kind of, you know, it's, there's pressure, but it's not as much pressure because, you know, somebody else is directing, but I love, you know, working with new directors and writers and I love making films around here and it's, they're really low budget. So it is a painful process and we're trying to figure out and making it, you know, less painless, you know, a little painless, but, uh, but we just premiered our, our, uh, our movie called Jester last night here locally. And it was a great turnout, you know, cause it's not, there's not much filmmaking going on here. So it's cool. And there's a, but there's a lot of talent here, you know, as there is pretty much anywhere. And, and I, I love to kind of, you know, highlight the local talent. So that's what I'm, I'm hopefully going to make, uh, make a couple, you know, five or six more movies of these uh, in this range next year. But other than that, you know, just kind of, you know, living day by day and trying to figure out, uh, you know, what happens after what, what, you know, I think everybody's trying to, you know, figure out what the business is going to look like after this, these strikes, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of changes. And um, so, you know, just looking forward to getting back to work, really. 
As we enter the final phase of the interview, I always like to ask one fun question. Now, you, we have behind you, for the people who can't see, one hell of a Star Wars collection. So what do you like to do for fun? How do you like to relax? I like to go to the movies. I either with my wife or by myself. I have uh, I love being at home. We have I have a house with a little woods in the back. I have a fire pit back there, so I I'm very much uh, you know uh, you can find me a lot of times just burning wood back there. You know I hang I have a pretty normal life. You know I just you know hang my friends and my family. My kids are I have a you know 14 year old is my youngest. I have two other kids in college, so see them when I can. And, uh, you know, and just kind of try to, you know, try to work, but also try to live as much as possible and not, you know, kind of keep the balance, you know, like I, I, I mean, I like being a filmmaker, but I don't know if I could be a full-time filmmaker. Like I like my time off, um, too much. Hmm. Um, so, um, that's kind of what I do. I mean, I basically just, um, I have, again, I manage this crazy Star Wars collection. I'm selling a lot of the stuff out. Uh, I buy some things and then, uh, you know, watch TV with my wife and, and you know, just try to enjoy my, uh, my life as much as I can, you know. What would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? There's a Facebook page called Hacks and Films, H-A-X-A-N, that um, is kind of like... Um, where I put up most of, my, you know, everything that's related to my career, whether it's, um, you know, the short, the, the small independent films that I'm doing and, you know, the big stuff, the TV stuff. So, and then, you know, I'm on Twitter. Um, I, I'm not, or X, I'm not really super active, but I do respond to people. And my tag is, uh, my name is uh, Sanchez on the mic. And, um, I'm on Instagram, but I don't, you know, again, I, I look at it a couple times a day, but I don't, I don't post much. Like I have this weird, you know, like for me, it's like, there's this thing of like, and I know that, you know, people are interested, but I'm always like, are people really freaking interested in, you know, what, in what I'm doing and, you know, and, and so there's a balance there. I know that people are interested, but I don't want to, you know, I don't like publicizing every aspect of my life. So I'm active, but I'm not, I'm not super active. Um, but I do, there's a, it, you know, you, you can definitely reach out to me and I'm pretty accessible through, through, through that. Fair enough. All right, Eduardo, I am my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of earth? Oh my God. Just, um, don't be so hard on each other, you know, like try to find, uh, you know, like again, what's happening in Israel right now and, you know, Ukraine. And, and I know it's, you know, just the idea of like being more understanding of other people's positions and, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess peace, you know I mean? It's, it's such a, such a, uh, you know, kind of a basic thing to, to want, but for me, it's like, don't be so hard on each other and, you know, and then don't, don't be so hard on yourself, you know, like we're all, you know, human and we all make mistakes and nobody's perfect. And um, I think, especially in the United States, I think there's like this level of like, you know, uh, stress of like performing of, um, I don't, you know, just don't, don't be so hard on yourself, you know, take, uh, you know, love yourself and, and love your neighbor. I know it sounds really hokey but that's kind of that that's all i can say really right now eduardo 
congratulations on scaring an entire generation of film goers and practically inventing internet film marketing. Uh, you've had one hell of a career. Congratulations on all your success. And thanks for coming on the show today. This has been absolutely fantastic for me. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, man. It was really interesting. And I appreciate the, you know, your, your interest in me. Thanks for reaching out. You're welcome. And just like that, Devon Nation, we come to the end of episode 204. I want to thank Eduardo for being so gracious with his time and for going so in-depth with his career. The Blair Witch Project can be found on Amazon Prime, and if you have not seen it, it's so well worth the watch. So, Eduardo, thanks again for coming on the show. This, sir, was indeed an honor. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. We drop our episodes on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for those episodes to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode, especially this one? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the Amazing Tea Public. The Derek Duvall Show is a great little store on there. And with everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner that left us as merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tea Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, I hope everyone had a good Veterans Day. I hope you all got to thank a veteran you know or met out in public and thank them for putting their ass on the line for their country. I got to spend the day eating free food, well worth getting up early on a Saturday for. I also got to march in the Tulsa Veterans Day Parade, which was a great honor. I will post some photos on our official Instagram page. Nostar, God bless. And see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.